Well, it's my privilege to share the word with you this week. I don't get the opportunity uh, regularly because we have uh, a lot of opportunity uh, for not only what Michael shares with us, but for others. But it is, whenever I get the opportunity, it is a delight. And so thank you. For those who don't know me, my name is Scott. I am the worship pastor here, among other things. And so it's my privilege to look at one of the seven I am statements with you this week. The one that we've already referenced, the resurrection and the life. And it comes from a pretty substantial passage. So I'm glad we have the extra day of the weekend because we'll need it when I'm finished. No, we won't. I'm just kidding. I don't think I'll need it. But let's look at John chapter 11. As we look at this passage, I want to put it within the context of suffering. Because that's the context that the text comes to us from. Tremendous example of suffering. And some of you currently are undergoing suffering. Now, we can characterize suffering in a lot of different ways. There's certainly gradations of suffering. There's things that are genuine, Job-like suffering. Just heart-wrenching, life-disrupting circumstances that some of you are absolutely going through right now. And then there are other things that, relatively speaking, may not be as severe as what we view in other people's lives, but for us, they still are times of suffering. It can be uh, anxiety or stress or a chronic illness or a relationship that just won't get straightened out or the source of pain from another person. You can fill in the blank with whatever you feel like God would have you focus on this morning as you look at this text. Because whatever it is that you probably came to mind just then as I gave that introductory thought, whatever it is that has come to mind when I mention the word suffering or trial or difficulty that you're currently experiencing is probably the thing that right now distracts you from what uh, you can gain from this season of your life. And I say it that way because I want to, I want to give a little bit of a, a preparatory or foreshadowing word about how we're going to look at this text and what I believe Jesus intends for us to see about what he did. Because this text could be approached in a glib fashion, a very cursory fashion, And we could take away a hallmark greeting kind of result and completely miss the depth of what happened here. Or we can dive deep into what's being said and the interactions that are occurring between the different different characters, the different personalities, and we can find in it a tremendous gift, tremendous truth for application now, what you're going through, or for someone else that you could share this with and encourage, or for tomorrow. For if you're not suffering yet, you will. Because Jesus has promised that in this world, there are troubles. It's a part of living this life. I want to read, uh, first of all, from 
the first portion of the text. I did provide a more comprehensive outline of my message than what's in the bulletin. It's out on the table. I don't know if someone could grab those and just see if anybody wants them, but it just would give you more of my thoughts. It also will help you know where we are in terms of time, whether or not you should pray for faster speech on my part or uh, slower. And then it also will give you some of the notes that you might be writing down. You could already have those in print. So I think Troy's going to get those. But we're going to begin by reading the first 16 verses of this text. We've already read the last section. We know the end of the story. We're going to start now with the first section. While I'm reading this, if you would like a copy of that outline, Troy's got them. If you just lift your hand, he can put one in your hand and share some of those notes there. This is John 11. 1 through 16. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. That's an important statement there. We want to just mark that mentally. It's a very important statement. The illness does not lead to death, because it's clearly going to lead to a temporal death or an earthly death, but it's not the point of what Jesus is driving at. It leads to the glory of God and the glory of the Son of God. Now, Jesus loved Martha. Hear the way this is constructed. Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So, meaning as a result of that love, when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. He did not go to Lazarus, Mary, and Martha. He stayed. That's important. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? Jesus answered, are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble, because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles, because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, But I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he'll wake up. That's the point here. He'll recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the opportunity to look at this text. Thank you for the word of God. And I ask you, Father, for the strength and the wisdom and the discernment to preach this text for this body. That you would bring to the forefront truths that need to be heard most by the people in this room 
and that you will set aside the truths that can wait for another day. I ask you, Lord, to send the Spirit of God, the Spirit who said He would remind us of the things Christ said and bring to illumination into our minds the things that are true upon this group that we might see and behold and know. Thank you for the privilege of looking at your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Luke tells us at this point in Jesus' ministry that Jesus had set his face to go to Jerusalem. And Charles Haddon Spurgeon preached a message on that text saying, essentially, the Redeemer's face set like a flint. And his point was, and the meaning of the Greek here is, that there was a determination upon Jesus to go to Jerusalem for the cross. And we know from Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews, that there is a, an aspect to Jesus' pursuit of the cross and the suffering associated with the cross that was enduring pain now for joy later. There was the understanding on our Savior's part that there was an enduring of the scorn and shame and pain and trial of the cross because there was a joy set before Him. Now it would be, uh, I think it would be a disservice to just kind of set it out like, you know, He knew the reward was going to be greater so He just kind of toughed it out. That's not what the cross was. But there was an aspect of the cross that indeed had a, an awareness of the, the eternal future as he endured the suffering, the wrath of God, for the people that would be saved, for the kingdom that would be built, and for the inheritance that the Father would give him through that. We are told similarly by Paul in Romans 8 that these sufferings of the present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed. So in the same path as the Savior demonstrates, enduring the cross, scoring its shame, so that he would behold the joy set before him, we too endure sufferings in this time because there is a glory coming that far outweighs the negativity of the pain. So however deep the pain, the glory is greater, far greater than what we suffer in this life. And Paul's point there is to point us to something more marvelous that we can actually begin to behold now but will not fully realize until we reach heaven. And that is this concept of glory. Now glory is a word we use a lot in church, but we don't always really know what we mean by it. So I gave you at the top of the page just kind of a Webster's kind of definition of what glory is. And from this particular definition, glory is, is defined as high renown or honor, won by notable achievements, magnificence or great beauty. I think that second part there is what we want to latch on to. Certainly it's true that he has high renown, the highest renown. But more so is this magnificence, this great beauty. And our delight in eternity and we need to sometimes reprogram the way we think about heaven. Our delight in eternity is going to be Him. He will be the reward. For He is the one who our heart longs for. His magnificence, His beauty, His extraordinary presence. And from the emanation or the eminence of His glory, there is a joy. 
At your right hand are pleasures forevermore, the psalmist says. Who's at the right hand of God? None other but the one who ascended to the right hand. The presence of heaven is the presence of the one who brings eternal joy, eternal delight. That is Christ. That is the glory of God. And that is our reward. So the sufferings, the negative feelings, the, the, the weightiness and the burden of this life, in Paul's writing in Romans 8, are contrasted with a greater glory, a greater delight, a greater joy that's to come. And our trial of this life includes a temptation to cling to this life. And so when something from this life is taken from us, there is a desire that having that back, which most often is not possible, creates an emptiness, a hopelessness, and a, and a further trial, a, a deeper agony of the loss. So that's what's potentially set up here in this situation with Lazarus. And I don't want to in any way undermine the true agony that this life can bring. Suffering is difficult. In fact, difficult is an understatement. Suffering can be debilitating. It can be neutralizing. Uh, we have our own story, as you all do, and in that story, there were seasons of life that felt uh, debilitating, that felt like there's just no point in going on. And, and some of you live there now with a feeling of there's just no point to this, a hopelessness, an emptiness. And that, while that's a real place in life and a real feeling, it is also to be contrasted with what we then do go on to. A greater joy, a greater delight, a greater glory, an eternal one that's absent from all sin and all pain and all suffering, but one also that's breaking into this life. And for whatever reason, it's during the periods of the most suffering that that brilliance seems to pierce the most marvelously. Most who love Jesus deepest have walked through deepest sorrows. I, I, that's, that's certainly just anecdotal. I don't have any stats for that. But if you look at the great most admirable followers of Jesus throughout history, their lives were not filled with rainbows and unicorns and balloons. Quite the opposite. Tremendous trial. Tremendous difficulty. Take the example of Paul in particular. If the Christian life was to be an easy one, this great Christian named Paul, who many would hold up as possibly the greatest in the ranks of those who followed after Christ, lived a pathetic life to exemplify health, wealth, and ease. You can find his testimony in Scripture to all that he endured. But it was with the last day in mind that he endured those things. That day. That day. The day of glorification. The day of Jesus Christ. The day that is coming. That's what I look at, he would say, brothers and sisters. I'm longing for that day because that's the day 
that matters. Here we have Lazarus, a friend of the Lord. Lazarus, Mary, and Martha, very familiar names in the New Testament. There's a familial relationship here. Mary and Martha's sisters, Lazarus their brother. Jesus would stay in their home in Bethany. Uh, Mary is the one, John tells us, that in, and we'll see it in chapter 12, is the one who will wash his feet. This is the home where Jesus was teaching. She sat at his feet and listened to his teaching while Martha was worried and troubled about many things. There's a contrast here in Scripture that's probably one of the most famous contrasts in all of the New Testament. We have a lot of stories about Peter and all the, the misfortune of Peter and his denial and his sticking his foot in his mouth and who he is. Martha has a similar reputation in Scripture, right? A lot of times women in particular pointed to Martha and say, don't be a Martha. Be a Mary. Don't be a Martha. And poor Martha has, has kind of developed that reputation from Scripture. Similar to Thomas. Thomas gets this reputation of the doubting Thomas. He just didn't ever believe. He just, if you're going to count on someone to be a naysayer, it was Thomas. This story doesn't help him too much, but it does show how one story can become the epitomization of a particular character. In this case, we have the contrasting uh, testimonies of Mary and Martha. Mary this was previous in Luke, and we had, uh, won't read that today, but you know the story. Mary sat at Jesus' feet. She heard the teaching. She was fixated on being with her Lord. Martha, quite the opposite. Martha is busy. So much so that she finally tells Jesus to get her sister's act together. Tell Mary to get in here in the kitchen and help me. And Jesus says, Martha, you're worried and troubled about many things. Now that contrast is flipped in this story. The sisters, of course that shows the, the relationship they have with Jesus. The sisters call for Jesus. Jesus, the one you love, Lazarus. You didn't even say a name. The one you love, knowing who it came from, he would have known that. Of course, he knew anyway. But just their, their understanding of the relationship was if we just say the one you love, you know that that's Lazarus. He is sick. Now there, is, there are three words I want to highlight the first I've already done so, glory. What is glory? We're going to, end, we're going to interweave glory. And the second word comes in, in this passage in verse 4. And, um, well, excuse me, let's, let's go to verse 6. 5 and 6. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Now John puts this in here to prove a point. There is an affection, a particular affection that Jesus is displaying towards Mary and Martha in particular, Lazarus as well, that verse 6 highlights. He loved them so much that he didn't go heal Lazarus. Now, brothers and sisters, this is venturing into a part of scriptural truth that some of you will choke on. Because your view of a good God is one that heals sicknesses and provides money and makes things easy. And that's an unfortunate view, but that is the way that our American Christianity has been shaded at times. Jesus loved Mary and Martha so much that he didn't go heal Lazarus. He stayed. Now that perhaps created some tension on, in the relationship. One side of tension. I don't think Jesus had any tension, but I think Mary did and Martha did. And you're going to see that in the next passage. 
And then he explains, this is not an illness that leads to death, it's an illness that is going to lead to the glory of God. It's going to contrast the temporal aspect of this life with the eternal aspect of the life to come. But it was because of his love that he stays longer. It's because of this affection that he does not respond to their request. In the way that God sees things in this particular circumstance and in some of your circumstances, he can demonstrate his love in a more profound way by not healing. It would point them more to the glory of God not to heal. Because what we need is not the temporal healing. What we need is the glory of God. What we need is the, if you allow me to use this adjective, the intoxicating presence of Jesus Christ. This is how he loves us. He gives himself to us. Not health. Not wealth, not ease, himself. Now, at times, he also gives health and wealth and ease. But the goal is always the same, to give himself to us. There's a little parenthetical statement here. I don't want to spend a lot of time with it, but verses 9 and 10, and this, this concept of walking in the light... And if I could just wrap it up quickly to say, I think what he's referring to here is, is it's not his time yet to be crucified. So he's still walking while it's day, night. There's still work to be done. And so he's going to go to Judea in spite of the, the disciples' protest. And there's, they're not going to touch him. Flip back one chapter and you'll see at the end of chapter 10, they tried to stone him in verse 31 and 39. And he got away both times. And his point to the disciples is, it's not yet night. I think that's the point there. But if I can just do that and move on for the sake of time. And then the third word, it said glory is the first word. We've already talked about that. Love, his peculiar love, his particular love, but love is the second. And the third, which is sort of the substance of this message, faith. Now there's this exchange with the disciples. And the disciples are confused because they typically seem to be missing what he's saying about things that matter. And he talks about that he's asleep and he's saying, well, okay, well, that's fine. We don't have to go wake him up. he wake up on his own. You don't sleep forever. And Jesus rebukes them. No, I mean he's dead, stupid. He didn't say stupid. That's my addition to the text. But I think that there was sort of an impl implication there that you are missing it completely as to why we need to go to Judea. It has nothing to do with the fact that Lazarus is taking a nap. It is that the glory of God must be revealed and then he says something very important, verse 15. He said, for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there. So that you may believe. Now something about this miracle, and this is the last miracle that's going to be performed before the crucifixion. So something about this miracle pushes it all out. They're all magnificent. Start back from the changing the water into wine at the wedding in Cana and all the way through the New Testament uh, miracles and many, many more that aren't even written down for us to know. They're phenomenal and they're attestations to who Christ is. But this one is unique. There's something about the raising of Lazarus that puts it all together and points to the main reason that he came. And it was imperative for the disciples and for us 
to see this in the way it played out to believe. Thomas, again, somewhat parenthetical. It makes you wonder sometimes why another disciple would write some of these stories down. It's inspired by the Holy Spirit, so we know that the Holy Spirit wants to be here, but John wants it to be here as well. Thomas says, okay, well, I guess we're going to go die. Let's go die. It's hard to see if Thomas was pessimistic, realistic, or sarcastic. But whatever he was, he had just sort of resigned himself to the fact, this is the end. We're going back to Judea. We just left with them throwing stones at us. Time to go die. But he went. Thank you, Thomas. Maybe that gives you, a, we'll give the most positive spin on that and kind of take off some, add some points back that are constantly taken off by not believing until you could put his hands in his side and his fingers in his nail prints. This takes us to the next section and the main section of this text. Verse 17, now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that, she was, that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. That's important to understand. That sort of tips us off to how Mary's feeling about Jesus right now. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. It's indicting, and I think it needs to be. I think we need to hear it that way anyway. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this, Martha? I love this declaration of faith. And I think it parallels the confession of Peter. She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. Now, Lazarus has been dead for four days. And we have two immediate responses to Jesus in this circumstance. One for Martha, one for Mary. Very much like the passage I've already referenced. Where Mary sat at Jesus' feet and Martha was worried and troubled about many things. Jesus comes to town. Martha hears that he's almost there and she runs out to meet him. There is an aspect of faith here that I think is important to affirm. And then there is a short-sighted faith that we need to adjust. Martha goes out to meet Jesus. Mary stays put. Martha, in a somewhat indicting way, says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Now, there's faith in that statement, but there's also a short-sighted faith in that statement. The faith says, Lord, I know you can do all things, and if you'd have been here, you could have prevented this. The short-sightedness of the faith says, but I know you can't do anything now because you weren't here before he died. Do you see how this is setting up to be a climactic miracle? Because there's still a lack of understanding by those who walk with him that Jesus has power over death. Even though they have seen him raise people from the dead, there is a lack of faith that anything can occur at this point. There is a sense in Martha's 
complaint and one that you and I would be quick to have as well. Why didn't you do anything, Jesus? Some in this room have had that on their lips in the circumstances of loss. Why didn't you do anything? Don't you care? Jesus is gentle. He's patient. And He's going to reveal to her and to us a deeper place for Martha to go and to live. I want to outline quickly four stages of the way we view Christ in this life. Stage one, most will ascribe to this, Jesus was a great teacher. He gave good principles to live your life by. Many will ascribe to that. Most will ascribe to that. Stage two, he's a great healer. He's got power. He's a great one to go to when you're in trouble. And many will ascribe to this. Because whether or not they go to church, when people get in a bind, they find Jesus quickly. Or they find some reason to ascribe to a power of God because they recognize things are out of their control. Stage three, and this is where we cross over into conversion, those first two stages can be held by people who are not saved, who are not converted. But stage three, he's a great savior. This is where we submit our lives to him. And we seek to live according to his teaching. I believe Martha is there in these statements. But she's not yet where I would encourage us all to pursue, which is a fourth stage. And I hate to, I'm I'm tempted now to say, well, this probably wasn't a good analogy because I don't want you to think there's a a threshold into a new stage. It's It's a new level of pursuit of Christ where he is not just a great savior, but he is the great delight. The all-consuming passion of our lives. Because we can truly be saved and truly enjoy the gift of salvation, but not yet have a place where he is the totality of our delight. And suffering presses us into this deeper walk. This is what I believe happens here. As Martha is pushed from great Savior to great delight. He asks her, Martha, almost ignoring her indictment, Martha, your brother will be raised in the resurrection. Now Martha's a good Jew. She knows the Jewish teaching about the resurrection of the last day. I know he will be raised in the last day. But I also know Jesus, and this is where her faith is built upon. You can do anything you want. Whatever you ask will be granted to you. Martha, before we go to whatever I want, do you know that the greater reality here of your brother's death is not that he will be raised on the last day, 
but that I am the resurrection and the life. Martha, do you see that the one standing in front of you is not just the one who gives you victory over sin and death, but is the reward of the resurrection. The substance of your life. Jesus explains this very clearly in John chapter 17 when he prays and he says, this is eternal life, Father. This is the very essence of life. This is the essence of what is to come and it's the essence of what can be now that they know you and the one whom you've sent. John 17, 3. The very essence of why we were created and why we're saved is to know God. Not know about God. Great teaching. Not know of His power. Go to Him when you're in trouble. But to know Him through salvation and to know Him as your delight. Martha's being moved, I believe, through this. And in the place of law, she makes this marvelous confession. She's not got her brother back. He's gone. And she says, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. I need nothing more than you. There's so many places in our life where we, we don't get what we think we need or something's taken from us that we think we're dependent upon. And we say, Lord, I want this back. And he says, no, because you need me more than that. Well, that's kind of selfish of God, isn't it? That He gets to decide? No, that's being God. Because what He knows we need is what He gives us. Not what He hears us say in all cases that we need. His gift to us is to give us what we really need. Sometimes that includes losing something else. Martha has reached a point where she says, I believe you are the Christ. Well, that leaves us Mary. Where's Mary? Mary's back in the house, weeping with the mourners. Moving on, and then we'll be done. When Jesus had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here. He's calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there, because weeping is more compelling at the tomb than it is back in the house. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come out with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Folks, we need to see here the indictment of humanity upon Jesus is that they, he did not care, that he did not come 
that he did not help. And when he's greatly troubled here and in angst over their response, many will say, oh, like the Jews did there, oh, he loved Lazarus and now he can't help it that he's gone. Or they'll say, oh, how he weeps for what death has brought to this life. I think there's a very small element of truth to that second statement. He does weep with those who mourn. But I think the greater source of his weeping is that his people didn't see who he was. That they did not see the glory of God in him. He responds to this indictment. Could not this guy who opened blind eyes have done something to help Lazarus with an earth-shaking miracle. We read of that at the opening of our service. The tomb, the stone, and the call. Lazarus, come out. Because of what he has already said, it is clear his intention is not just to raise one dead man, but to raise millions from death to life. To open the eyes of the spiritually blind and show them the beauty that is the glory of God in the face of Christ. There was way more going on here than one man being brought back from the dead. He was demonstrating that what he's about to go do in Jerusalem will forever roll the stone away on death. Which brings me to five observations that I'll close with. They're on your notes there. The first, there's a difference between knowing Jesus can and that he will heal. He can heal. And I will join you in praying for your healing or your request for healing whenever you would like. I know Michael will do the same and any of our deacons and ministry leaders will join in that prayer. There are many in this church who will and should. But there are times that we believe the glory of God is for him to heal. And he knows the glory of God is something greater. And we have to understand that. Doesn't mean we don't pray for healing. We do. And we pray radically. But he does what God knows to do. Second, faith that says to Jesus, whatever you want to do, you can do, is what we need. That statement by Martha is a glorious statement in spite of its context of her indictment. Trust him that he can do whatever he wants to do. Number three, sometimes we have to move the stone to see the glory. Sometimes we have to get out of the boat to walk on water. Sometimes we have to stretch out our hand to see it healed. You get the point. There are some times where we understand clearly that he is directing in something and we need to obey his directive. 
Now, that doesn't mean entice him. That doesn't mean, okay, I'm going to go down to the Ohio River and walk on the water just to prove that he can make me walk on the water. You will get wet. But when Jesus prompts your heart, when the Holy Spirit prompts you, go talk to your neighbor. Tell your co-worker you're praying for her. Pick up the phone and call. It's because he's saying, roll the stone away. Obey him. Number four, Jesus is not just the means to the resurrection. He is the resurrection. Lazarus would be raised to die again. How's that for life? Michael and I were talking this morning about what the conversations must have been like with Lazarus. They were not recorded. But somewhere in Lazarus' experience, there was some experience of paradise snatched back, back on earth. You get to die again. Second time may be worse than the first. Jesus is the resurrection. He is the delight. So the healing, the, the, the miraculous, that's all well and good. But it is Him that we delight in. And then finally, raising Lazarus was the demonstration of the foretaste of what Jesus will accomplish in our lives. Delight. Delight in Him. Enjoy Him. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you that we've had the opportunity to consider what you have done. And I thank you for the gift that is the one who said he's the resurrection and the life. And we pray that eyes will be opened in this room this morning to this great truth. Help us, dear Jesus, to have eyes to see and to walk in that faith. In Jesus' name, amen.